It's foolish to think you can see when you're really blind. Uh, In May 2013, Paul Keatings, that's not our ex-Prime Minister, somebody else, uh, he crashed his friend's sports car into a boulder near Glasgow in Scotland after nearly hitting a pedestrian a few minutes before. Now, that's not that unusual. There's car accidents every day. Uh, Except that Paul is legally blind and he walks with the aid of a stick and he's never driven before. He and his friend thought it would be okay since his friend was in the passenger seat and holding the wheel with one hand and the handbrake with the other. He was charged with dangerous driving and disqualified from driving for 32 months. I'm not sure what happens after 32 months, whether he's eligible to sit for a licence or not. (laughs) It's foolish to think you can see when you're really blind. That's the mistake the Jewish leaders make in John chapter 9 when it comes to seeing who Jesus really is. It's a chapter that's all about seeing and blindness, whether it's physical blindness or spiritual blindness. We'll get to that in a moment. But it's introduced with a discussion about something so important I can't overlook it, the connection between sin and suffering. In fact, the question of sin is, weave all the way through this chapter, whether it's the sin of the blind man or his parents or Jesus or the Pharisees. That's how the chapter begins. Jesus and his disciples are walking along, they come across a blind man and the disciples ask Jesus a difficult question. Perhaps they want Jesus to settle an argument between them. Verse 2, he's been blind from birth and the question comes, whose sin caused his blindness his parents or his own. One side thinks that since it was from birth, it must have been his parents who were being punished. Uh, The other side, perhaps, say that the man himself did something wrong even before he was born. But there's a problem with the whole question. The assumption behind both sides of the debate is that a particular sin caused the suffering. And what's Jesus' answer? Verse 3, he says, you've both got it wrong. Now, the Bible, I think, teaches at least five different ways that sin and suffering are connected. So, firstly, sin in a general sense. It's certainly true that sin in a general sense has consequences for the whole world. Genesis 3 tells tells us that Uh, The fall, Adam and Eve's fall, means that the whole creation suffers because of sin. Every aspect of life is messed up. Romans 8.22 talks about creation groaning in pain, waiting for Jesus to return. That's in a general sense. What about individual sin? Well, sometimes the Bible describes individual sin that leads to punishment. Maybe you can think of some examples. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 or Nadab and Abihu who uh, offered the wrong sort of sacrifices in Numbers chapter 3 or there was Achan in Joshua chapter 7 uh, or in the New Testament church there's the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11. Some have even died because of the, the way they are living. But not all the time. In fact, it's surprisingly rare in the Bible how often 
individual sin is punished in a, an immediate way. Uh, and even when it does, these examples that I've chosen or, or found, uh, it's often serving a bigger purpose than just punishing one person. It's often God uses this person as a warning to everybody else, uh, whether it's Israel or the early church. Something that's different to punishment is consequences. Uh, Lots of times God brings in our life consequences for our sinful actions. It, It just is wisdom. If you drink and drive or if you speed, you might be fined and you might lose your licence. If you don't pay tax or you steal, you might be fined or go to prison. If you commit adultery, you might lose your family and your wife or husband might divorce you. Now, are those things punishment? I don't know that they're specifically God punishing you. If you do something wrong and you get caught, there are consequences. So if you do those things, uh, don't say, why is God punishing me? Uh, Maybe it's just a consequence of you doing the wrong thing. In fact, I'd go so far to say that if you are a Christian, then God is not punishing you for anything that happens. Uh, Romans 8, chapter 1 says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus has taken the punishment for our sin. There is no punishment left for us. But there is a fourth category. The Bible does talk about discipline. And it does, not in the sense of punishment, but in the sense of training. Hebrews chapter 12, we discover Christians who endure, called to endure hardship as discipline from the hand of a loving Heavenly Father. It's not pleasant. Uh, but it does produce a harvest of righteousness for children who've been trained. But what about for the non-Christian? Does God punish the non-Christian for the sin in this life? I think that's a more difficult question. Romans chapter 1 seems to talk about, well does talk about the wrath of God being revealed at the present against all godlessness and about how God hands people over to their sinful desires. Is that punishment or is that just the consequences of the choices they make? I'm not sure. I do think Romans 1 moving into Romans 2 seems to suggest that God allows the suffering for the non-Christian actually as a warning about what will happen if he continues in that path. I think God sometimes says, if you keep living the way you're living, there is much worse in store for you than just this physical illness or this unemployment or this house fire. Recognise this as a warning and turn to me so that you can avoid eternal wrath, eternal punishment. That's the lesson Jesus certainly uh, wants people to learn in Luke chapter 13. Uh, It's a similar sort of situation. Some people come to Jesus and they say, describe to him a a massacre of some Galileans. Uh, And Jesus responds, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? In other words, 
they're not being punished for their sin. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. In other words, take this as a warning so that you don't suffer eternal judgement. But all of those five reasons are in other parts of the Bible. What does Jesus actually say here in John chapter 9? So let's, let's come back to John chapter 9. Well, he's been asked the question, whose fault is this? And in verse 3, Jesus has a different purpose. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened, his blindness happened, so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And he goes on to describe what God's work is in his life. As long as it's day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is doing his father's work. It's why he's been sent. And this man is here for that very reason, so that Jesus can work on him, so that the work of God by Jesus' hand can be seen in his life. That's why he was born blind. Now the word therefore displayed is revealed, made visible. I think it's actually a bit of a pun. Uh, The whole chapter is about seeing and not seeing, about recognising, seeing Jesus, about not being blind. Uh, And Jesus is saying God's glory will be displayed or revealed. Uh, Displaying God's glory is, in the end, why all bad things happen. So that God's glory can be seen by people. Why did God create Satan? It's a great question. But I think ultimately it's so that everybody could see God's power when he's defeated. Why did God allow human beings to sin? Well, so that God's goodness could be seen when he saves them. Why did God create hell? Gee, these are great questions, aren't they? Why did God create hell? So that his justice and his holiness could be seen when he justly punishes people and so that we could praise him when we're delivered from hell. And why did God cause this man to be born blind? So that many people, including him, would see the work of God in his life, would see God open his physical eyes and open his spiritual eyes and give God glory. Giving God glory is the whole purpose for the whole world in good and bad things. The universe is one big God-glorifying machine. It's been created so that people would recognise his glory and submit to it and enjoy it now and forever. And this chapter too is all about recognising the glory of God. And that brings us to verse 6 which is about blindness and sight. The work of God is about to be revealed in this blind man. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva put it on the man's eyes, go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, uh, 
This word, Siloam, means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. It's a very short description, isn't it? But it's full of questions at the same time. Why spit? Why mud? Why doesn't Jesus just say the words uh, and he's healed? And who cares about the name of the pool? But on the surface at least, it's clear Jesus heals him. He was born blind but now he has perfect vision. The light of the world has shone in one more dark corner. But it's an event that symbolises something else. Restoring physical sight is a symbol for restoring spiritual sight. And the clues are in those very questions that make us curious. In verse 4, Jesus says his job is to do the one, uh, to do the work of the one who sent him. Jesus is the sent one. And then in verse 7, he tells the man to go and wash in the pool that is called sent. Wash in that pool and your eyes will be opened. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Sent. He's sent. And the pool is sent. I am the one who washes eyes and causes sight. Come to me to be washed clean, to have your sins forgiven. You'll be clean and you'll be able to see who I am. But there's another clue as well. Look at the words of the blind man there in verse 11. He's describing what happened. The man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes, He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed and then I could see. Four steps to physical sight. Make mud, put it in the eyes, told to go and wash, went and washed and the result he could see. And as we follow the story through we see how there are four steps to his spiritual eyes being opened as well. As he gradually comes to see who Jesus is. So firstly in verse 11, who does he see Jesus as? Just a man, the man they call Jesus. Step one. Uh, By the time we get down to verse 17, the Pharisees have arrived. They can't work out whether Jesus is a sinner or a good man. When they ask the healed man what he thinks, he has a better idea than he did before. Uh, What have you to say about him, they asked. It was your eyes he opened. The man said, he's a prophet. Step two, he's a man, but he's more than a man. He is a prophet who communicates God's words. If we jump down a few more verses, down to verse 31, and uh, he comes to a a better conclusion. Uh, He says in verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. A man, a prophet, but now he's from God. He's come from out of this world. And then finally, the fourth step. Jesus comes back and he says to the man, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, you've now seen him. Your physical eyes have been opened. What about your spiritual eyes? Can you see who Jesus really is? How does the man respond? 
Well, verse 38, his spiritual sight is just as good as his physical sight. And he says, Lord, I believe. Lord, he calls Jesus, King, Master. And what does he do? He worships him. Four steps. It's a story about a blind man who comes to see physically and spiritually. He recognises Jesus and trusts him and submits to him as king. But it's also a story about those others who have perfect physical sight yet who are blind. The Pharisees. They should have been the ones who recognised Jesus because the blind seeing was a sign that the Messiah had come. The Pharisees knew Isaiah 35 where God promised the desert and the parched land will be glad, the wilderness will rejoice and blossom, it will burst into bloom, it will rejoice greatly and shout for joy for they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendour of our God, then will the eyes of the blind be opened. The Pharisees should have been ready. They of all people when blind eyes were opened, they should have said, it's the Messiah. But they, were, but they missed it. They were more worried about whether Jesus had broken the Sabbath law by mixing mud with his finger, doing work. Or, or whether Jesus had caused the heal man, healed man to break the Sabbath by commanding him to walk to the pool. further than he was supposed to. They were more worried about that than they were about whether God had actually arrived and was bringing in a new age. They were blind when they should have been able to see. But the blind man was the one who could really see. Jesus contrasts these two types of people down in verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Now that really annoys the Pharisees. They can see enough to realise he's talking about them. What, are we blind too, they say? When it's obvious to everyone else except for them that they are the blind ones. It's obvious to everyone whose example to follow and whose example to avoid. Jesus finishes the chapter. He says to the Pharisees, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. In other words, if you were humble enough to recognise that you don't have all the answers, then you're well on the way to seeing, to believing. There's hope for you. Come to Jesus and he can open your eyes. But Jesus says if you're too proud to admit, to admit that you're blind, there's no hope for you. You're guilty and you're headed for judgement. It's foolish to pretend you can see when you're really blind. Make sure that's not you. Are your eyes open to Jesus? So what are we to do? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? We're to follow the example of the healed blind man. He's the disciple worth copying. The healed man, he's the evangelist. He's the one who defends Jesus. 
who tells others about him. I think there's some lessons we can learn from him. Firstly, he was healed. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Jesus can and still does heal people today physically. He is Lord of this world. He's not dead, he's alive and reigning. He still controls the wind and the waves. He still controls sickness. So we should be asking confidently for physical healing. He might say no, but we should still ask for it. He's powerful enough to do it. The second lesson I think we can learn is that discipleship and conversion is often slow over a number of steps. We sometimes expect people to become Christians the first time we tell them and sometimes that happens but often it takes time. Uh, Courses like Christianity Explained are good because they give people time to think about things and to ask questions over weeks rather than minutes. And when they do make a decision it's more likely to be one that will last because they've thought about it. So we should give people the freedom and the time to make an informed decision about Jesus. The third thing we can learn from this blind man is that when Jesus sends you, go. This man obeyed. Not only when he went and washed in the pool, that seemed crazy, but when he stood up before stood up for Jesus, when he courageously told the truth. Did you notice that his parents weren't even willing to tell the truth? They weren't even willing to step over the line onto Jesus' side. They were more concerned with being accepted by people. More concerned with being accepted by others than they were being accepted by God. And we can be like that. More concerned that our friends stay friends with us than they, than that they become friends with God. And so we often say nothing to our friends. Compare that sort of fear with the courage of the healed man. He's a bit cheeky really, isn't he? I have a little chuckle when I hear how he talks to the Pharisees. Uh, Verse 27, the Pharisees ask him some questions but he answers, I've told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear again? Do you want to become his disciples too? I think he knows very well that they don't. Then they hurled insults at him and said, you're this fellow's disciple, we're disciples of Moses, uh, which he knows all along. When Jesus sends you, go. Uh, A fourth lesson, you don't need to know everything to begin telling people about Jesus. He was only just learning, but he spoke of what he knew. His response to the Pharisees has been used by thousands of Christians since. If you've got your own Bible, you might want to underline it. Don't do it if you've got one of your the church Bibles, but you can certainly do it in the yellow sheets. Verse 25, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Isn't that great? I haven't got all the answers, but one thing I know, he's changed me. Uh, Don't underestimate how powerful a personal testimony can be. 
I don't know why, but often the longer people have been Christians, the less enthusiastic they are about sharing their faith. And it's often new Christians who tell everybody they meet, sometimes in ways that maybe aren't as wise as they could, but they're doing it. Why is it that we older Christians don't tell people about Jesus? Tiredness, laziness, disobedience. If you understand more of God's grace and the beauty of Jesus, shouldn't you be more excited about sharing? Pray that God would give you a new appreciation of grace, of what you used to be like and what you have been saved to and what you've been saved from. Pray that Jesus would open your eyes and the eyes of the people you speak to so that they can see him and believe in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus. We pray for the people around us that they too would see Jesus, that we might obey him courageously and stand up for him. Amen.